I have to admit that I am a fan of the, the first half of the musical, The Fiddler on the Roof. How many of you like that one? There, there's at least a few of you. I have to admit, I'm not as much of a fan of the, the second half. As they get into the, the second half where they're dealing with the hardships that the Jews faced in, in 20th, early 20th century Russia, that the humor really gives way to a lot of intense te- tensions. But, but I do like the first half where it's quite humorous, it's quite whimsical. There's a lot of fun songs mixed in there. As Tevi, the, the main character there, deals with trying to marry off his five daughters. Marrying off one was enough. Marrying off five would be a challenge, and, and this Jewish milkman, he's facing those challenges. And, and one of my favorite songs, as he deals with the challenges, is the song Tradition. Now you can, if you know the music, you already have it going in your head. Tradition, he's trying so hard to hold on to the tr- traditional ways in which things are done in their community. He, he says, because of our traditions... We've kept our balance for many, many years. Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Well, many of you can probably relate. I, I know I can. We, we like our traditions. We value our traditions. We even find goodness in our traditions. And as we'll see this afternoon, that is a very ancient perspective. We are... Going back to Zechariah now after a two and a half month break in our series, and I'm going to for spend some time reviewing. It's been two and a half months, and a lot of things have happened in there. You know, little things like Christmas and New Year's and time, those, those kind of things that, that cause us to forget what's going on. So I want to spend some time reviewing the historical context. It's very important in prophetic books like Zechariah. Uh, what we have in prophetic books are really a set of sermons collected. And, and they're sermons that were called forth by specific circumstances going on at the time. Probably even more than other types of literature, we really need to know what's going on when this sermon was given. And, and the historical context becomes very critical to understanding what God is trying to say as he addresses the circumstances the people are living in. Zechariah, as I mentioned this morning, he was one of the prophets that God called to speak on his behalf after the Babylonian exile. Zechariah came on the scene two months after the prophet Haggai. God used both those prophets. Haggai and Zechariah used both men who came from priestly families to challenge the nation about one thing. Get back to work rebuilding the temple. The, the initial refugees had come back 15 years earlier after Cyrus had a lot, issued his decree. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar took them away in 586 B.C. And, and then Cyrus, later, many uh, generation later, he, he issued a decree saying they could return to their homeland. And he was of the Medes and Persians. He had a different idea about how to rule a vast empire, and he allowed people to go to their homeland where Nebuchadnezzar said, if you're not in your homeland, you won't rebel because you're not going to fight for a foreign land. Well, Cyrus, as a Medes and Persian, was more enlightened. He said, well, if our populace is happy because we let them live and worship their own gods and do whatever, they're not going to rebel. So different, different philosophy. But the bottom line is that led him to give permission for the Jews to return. And Zerubbabel led a group of Jews back to Judah to rebuild Jerusalem. Part of the goal there was to rebuild the temple. 
Zerubbabel and the refugees that he led, they, they arrived and they found the city largely in ruins. They, they quickly got to work and cleaning up things around the city. And, and part of their project then was to quickly start rebuilding the temple. They, they went to work at it. They laid the foundation quickly. Sadly, that, that rebuilding project was waylaid by opposition and, and hardships shortly after it began. And the rebuilding project ceased. By the time God called Haggai and Zechariah to the scene, the temple had sat unfinished for 15 years. The, the people had spent those 15 years cleaning up the city of Jerusalem, re, rebuilding their homes, making themselves comfortable. But the house of God was not dealt with. It was just sitting there in rubble and in foundations. Well, a couple months before Zechariah came on the scene, God called Haggai to issue a challenge for the people to get back to work. Haggai came and accused them of, of their wrong-headedness. They're, they're dealing with their own personal comforts without concern for God, and the people responded. They, they, they responded to God's challenge. They, they picked up their saws and their hammers, and, and they got back to work. Well, two months later, God calls Zechariah to come. And Zechariah comes on the scene to challenge them about their heart repentance. The, the people were working on the temple, but, but that did not mean that their hearts were fully right before God. After all, these were the same people that allowed the temple to sit there for 15 years, uh, allowed themselves to care for their own stuff, their own concerns, their own well-being. So they were doing the right thing, but did they have the right heart? There was still some construction work to do within the people along with rebuilding the temple. The people needed to be rebuilt as well. And that's where Zechariah comes on the scene. God wanted to rebuild the t people so that they could worship him when the temple was rebuilt. Well, roughly two to three months after Zechariah's first revelation for the people from God, Zechariah received another. The, the record of that second uh, revelation they got from God hit us in Zechariah chapter 1 verse 7. And we were given enough information in that verse to tell us exactly when Zechariah received his revelation. It was February 15th, 519 B.C., according to our calendars. Well, that place of the, the second revelation, five months to the day from the time the people began working on the temple under Haggai's call. They were rebuilding the temple. They've, five months have shown their faithfulness. They're demonstrating their commitment to God. And God, in turn, through Zechariah, demonstrates his commitment to his people by, by revealing some really stupendous things. He revealed a lot to Zechariah on the night of the 15th of February, 519. God gave Zechariah a total of eight different visions. We looked at all those visions last year. They, they all came on a single night. The record ran from verse 8 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6. God rewarded the faithfulness of the people with information about his plan way in the future for Israel, especially for Jerusalem. As we looked through the eight visions last year, we saw that, that God showed the people of Zechariah's day that Israel would become a very mighty nation again. Jerusalem is going to serve as the, the seat, the capital city, for a Davidic dynasty that will be global in, in, in compass. 
A glorious future is coming. Now I say is coming because from our perspective it is still future as well. It was future from Zechariah's perspective but much of what we saw revealed in those eight visions remains future. It is coming because it awaits the day that we just pointed to with this meal when our Savior returns and he sets up his kingdom. That will be the Davidic kingdom. Well, this evening we're, we're picking up our series in Zechariah in chapter 7. Uh, I invite you to, to go there and, and look at verse 1 with me. Zechariah 7 verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Well, I told you the earlier visions that we had looked at last year, those were the night of February 15th, 519 B.C. They happened in the second year of Darius's reign. Well, now, here we just read, we're in the fourth year. Historically, as we put this in historical context, that means the reconstruction of the temple would not have been completed yet. It, it takes a few more years for it to complete, but it's well underway. It's been happening now for going on, on two years. In, in fact, from what we were just given, we can again date this to a, a specific day. We know exactly when this vision came from our calendar, we don't use the, the Babylonian calendar, but from our calendar, the date would translate to December 7th, 518 B.C. That, that puts this set of visions almost two years after the earlier. The earlier ones were February 15th. Now, almost two years later, we're in December 7th. So, coming up on that two-year mark. Almost two years after, uh, we have another set of visions. There will be four in total this time that Zechariah receives. They, they run all the way through chapter 8. To, tonight, or today, I was going to say tonight, I'll probably slip a couple times that way. Today, I, I plan to look at just the first two of the four, the, the ones that are found in Zechariah chapter 7. Before we start looking at the visions themselves, we need to figure out what are the circumstances that, that called forth the visions of God. Remember, this is a prophetic book. Prophetic books deal with historical circumstances. The historical situation is important. Why is God speaking? Well, in this case, we're given a lot of the why in verses 2 and 3 of our chapter. In those verses, we're given the reasons that God gave revelation to Zechariah on December 7th, 518 B.C. Look at verse 2. Now, notice it adds in the town of, but now Bethel, Bethel the, the town, had sent Sherezer, 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 I practiced and I still can't get out. Regimelech, huh? Yeah, the, the S guy and the R guy, those two guys. Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. Speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Well, the visions that God gives here to Zechariah are prompted by the arrival in Jerusalem of men from the town of Bethel. The, these men arrive to ask the priests a question. Actually, as we work our way through the visions, we'll learn they, they ask a, a set of questions, but all the questions really boil down to the, the same idea. They're, they're, they're 
general, they're, they're focused on the same thing. Now, before I discuss the question, I want us to recognize some, some things that verse 2 hints toward. The, these two men who are named, the names I can't pronounce so well, they're hard because those are Babylonian names. Of course, I, you know me well enough, I don't do well with Hebrew names either, but, but we'll blame this on these are Babylonian names. That, that strongly suggests that these men were returnees from the exile. In other words, they've been born in Babylonian territories and, and they came back somewhere between Zerubbabel, the first wave, or, or somewhere in the last 15, now we're up to 17 years. Also, the, the fact that they're coming from Bethel, that indicates that over these last 17 years, things have stabilized in, in the area. And they've stabilized sufficiently in, in the region that the returnees no longer need to huddle in Jerusalem for protection. They, they've been able to, to spread out. People have settled in Bethel, and, and we can assume that if they're settling in Bethel, they're probably settling in several surrounding cities or towns uh, around Jerusalem. In other words, the, the region is, is stabilizing. Uh, another thing that, that we should have in mind is that even though the temple is still incomplete at, at this time, Ezra 3.3 informs us that the altar has been set up. And daily sacrifices were, were likely under, well, they were underway again. Ezra 3.3 tells us the altar is in place, sacrifices have started. They're, they're not done building the temple, but the sacrificial system is up and running again. The idea that we have in our verse here that these men are, are coming to seek the favor of the Lord is, is likely indicating that they're bringing a sacrifice along to offer alongside their question. They're, they're hoping that God will reveal an answer through the priests. After all, according to Deuteronomy 17.9, uh, it was a priest's duty to, to give decisions related to, to matters regarding the Mosaic law. They, so, from their perspective, going to the priest to, to ask people for spiritual advice seemed like a good idea. Uh, of course, there's also a couple prophets here, right? You've got Haggai and Zechariah. Those men are in Jerusalem as well. So, Jerusalem's the place to go if you need an answer on a spiritual question. So what is the question that the, the visitors raised? They asked, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain? Well, from our perspective, that language is kind of obscure, isn't it? it it's obscure unless we know something about Jewish history at the time. Fortunately, we do. Not we as us, but we as our generation knows because the Jews left good records of this period of their history. So, so we know that the question that these men are asking is whether they should continue to honor a day of fasting in the fifth month. That's what they mean by abstain, abstain from food. Should they continue fasting in the fifth month? As I said, we'll learn as we go along that there's actually a series of questions, but they all have to do with fast days, days to abstain from eating, fasting days. At some point during the exile, in, in Jew. Jewish history is a little fuzzy because the early days of the exile, there aren't near as good of records as there are towards the, the end of the exile and after. But some point during the exile, the Jews had began fasting in, in memory of events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem and, and the destruction of the temple. The, the fast day in the fifth month that, that the exiles began, um, not celebrating, commemorating would be the right word, specifically commemorated the destruction of the temple itself. 
that the temple was destroyed in the fifth month of 586 BC. The, the records are, are a little obscure. It was either the seventh or the tenth of that month. But in the fifth month of 586 BC, the temple was destroyed. In some point during the, the exile, the, the Jewish community in exile decided we're going to fast on the day that we in the fifth month remembered the destruction of our temple. It's a day of mourning, a day of sadness, a day of fasting. Well, remember, verse 1 tells us we're in the ninth month of the year at this point. We have to put ourselves into the, the flow of things. We're in the ninth month. We also have a temple under construction with an altar and daily sacrifices underway. It isn't hard to imagine how a question could have arisen when people fasted four months earlier. You can almost put yourself in their mind. Somebody's saying, is it really necessary for us to fast over the destruction of the temple? The temple's half rebuilt. Sure, we, we fasted for many years when there wasn't a temple, but, but why keep at it now? And apparently some sort of question like that came up. It came up in Bethel which was outside Jerusalem. I mean, for Bethel to fast, it may have been hard, but maybe they're also involved some sort of, well, we need to get together in Jerusalem or something. I don't know. But anyway, Bethel asked the question, and they sent a delegation to the priests in Jerusalem to try and get an answer. Fasting's burdensome. It's no fun at all. Why should people keep doing it if it's no longer necessary? Well, through Zechariah, the Lord gives the people an answer. In fact, the, the Lord gives the people four answers, more than they bargained for. It, in fact, it's really only the last answer that, that actually is a direct answer to the question the delegation gives, but we'll have to wait till Lord willing next week to get to the actual answer the Lord gives about the question. Till before then, he gives some answers they did not anticipate as part of their question. First, the Lord begins by giving an unexpected answer, but it's an answer from which we learn something. We learn first that doing something in the name of the Lord is not the same as doing something for the Lord. I'm happy my wife's in nursery duty to, this afternoon because she never likes when I give long points. She'd be on me for this one. But. But doing something in the name of the Lord is not the same as doing something for the Lord. Follow along as I read the Lord's first response, beginning in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat? For yourselves? Do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, along with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? Again, an unexpected answer. But let's start looking at it by noticing a couple of things. First, notice that even though the, the question was raised by a delegation from Bethel, the Lord's answer addresses a much broader audience. He, he says, say to all the people of the land and to the priests. In other words, this is for everybody that's, that's of the Jewish nation that's returned here. 
all the returnees are affected by the answer. They all need to, to hear this because they're all affected by the same condition. They're all fasting on, on specified days to commemorate negative events of history. Second, let's notice that, the, that God also references a, a second fast uh, in the seventh month. They, you know, in, in verse um, 3, they mention the fifth month, or they ask about the fifth month. In verse 5, the Lord says fifth and seventh months. And like I said, we'll add a couple more as we go. I've already said the fifth month fast was to commemorate the temple destruction. Well, in the seventh month, the exilic community the, had initiated a fast that commemorated the assassination of Gedaliah. Now, unless you're really up on, on your historical events in Israel and the, the fall of, of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., you may not know who Gedaliah is. He comes up in Jeremiah f- for one place, but Gedaliah is the man that Nebuchadnezzar left in charge of the region of Judah after he conquered Jerusalem. He deported everybody except for the very, very, very poor, and he left a man named Gedaliah in charge. He was the governor of the region for Nebuchadnezzar, a Jewish person. That Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll leave one Jew here in charge of the region who serves me. Well, Gedaliah was quickly assassinated by some Jewish rebels. Some of the the rebels saw him as a traitor because obviously he was reporting to Nebuchadnezzar, and they assassinated him. They were the don't tread on me, I'll never give up kind of people. So they assassinated Gedaliah. Nebuchadnezzar in turn retaliated harshly against the few survivors that were left in Jerusalem. Added an additional humiliation to the people who were already crushed by, by him. So that turned into another day that the, the community commemorated, another fast day, the seventh month. They remembered that Gedaliah was assassinated. The shocking response from the Lord is that he states that the people were not fasting for him with these fasts. They were doing it for themselves. You see, God's point is the fast had not been instituted by God. God had only instituted a single day of fasting in the Mosaic Law. They were to fast on the Day of Atonement. The day when the people would offer a bloody sacrifice to pay the penalty that their sins demanded. God expected people to mourn over their sin. That is what he required of the people. Instead, for the past 70 years, actually it was 68, but 70 is a round number. um, For the last years, the people had mourned over the consequences of their sins rather than mourning over their sins. Do you see the distinction? Similar to what we were talking about this morning, consequences of sin bring hardships into our lives. They were mourning over the hardships. They weren't mourning over the sins. And worst of all, their actions by this point were a sham. They were mourning to gratify themselves, not God. They were wallowing in self-pity. They were following rote ritual. But they certainly weren't engaged in genuine repentance. The illustration that God uses in verse 6 is, is just daily eating and drinking. He says when you gather around the table and you eat, you're eating for the benefit of your own bodies. Your bodies need the food. God doesn't. You do. Well, in a similar way, he says you're doing the same thing with these fast days. You're fasting for your own benefits. 
And now that that fasting has become irksome and, and you think you've got a possible way out, now you're asking God to grant permission to stop. The point that God makes in verse 7 is that while they're looking at their relative security now, like I said, they've spread out. They're, they're in Bethel. They're, they're, they're no longer having to hide in, in the rubble of Jerusalem. They, they spread out, but the, the expansion and this partial reconstruction, they're looking at this as security, and they're saying this is reasons that we can stop doing what they claim they're doing for the Lord. And the Lord says, you're looking at this relative security and totally ignoring your history. For centuries, Jerusalem was truly secure. I mean, Nehemiah won't come on scene for several years yet. The walls are not built around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not truly secure at this point, but they're saying, eh, we're able to live in Bethel. Things are good. He says, for centuries, Jerusalem was truly secure. You had great cities surrounding you that were real buffers of security, protecting you against invaders. During those centuries, God had sent prophet after prophet to warn them about their sin, to urge them to repent, to preach obedience to them. That was the time when you should be asking God what he expects of you. Not now. Yet even now, God says, the people are not really asking what he expects of them. They're asking whether they should continue doing something God has never told them to do. They're concerned about things that God has not commanded. They're concerned about traditions when they should be concerned about what God has repeatedly and clearly commanded. Obedience to the law. Obedience to the law should consume their attention just as it should have consumed the attention of the ancestors. To say the Lord responded in a surprising way is probably an understatement. They did not see that coming. But we can learn doing something in the name of the Lord is not the same as doing something for the Lord. I can't help but wonder, are there things in our lives? Are there things in our church that, that would suffer a similar rebuke from the Lord is what the Jewish refugees or returnees received in, in these verses. If we ask God, should we keep doing something that we're doing out of our traditions, would God respond this way? Think about our church. Uh, the heritage of our church stands on a rich tradition. We, we, we love, I have a love in our church for the, the accurate and, and careful handling of the word of God. We, we value corporate gathering. We, we honor corporate praise. I, I would say there's a lot of good things in our traditions, things that, that we can directly trace to commands in Scripture. Yet our rich tradition has, at the same time, prompted us to become traditionalists in many ways. Could we possibly find ourselves celebrating our traditions as much as we celebrate the Lord? Is there a chance that our traditions could even rise higher than the Lord's commands in the things we love? After all, what is it that we, I can say we, or maybe I should say what is it that you or I get most worked up over? Is it violations of God's word or threats to our traditions? 
is probably something that we should think about. Part of the problem that the Jews of Zechariah's day had is that after 68 years, the, the people couldn't tell the difference between the traditions that they were doing and what the Lord had commanded. In their mind, they were one and the same. We do this, so God wants us to do this. Either they couldn't tell the difference, or they were more concerned about the traditions than what the Lord had commanded. Well, that was 68 years. Our church is sitting at 59 years. Seems like enough time has probably passed in our church where we could have similar confusion, couldn't we? Doing something in the name of the Lord is not the same as doing something for the Lord. That's the point the Lord makes very strongly in the first vision he, he gives Zechariah in response to this delegation from Bethel. But he's not done. Uh, on December 7th, 518 B.C., he gives a second vision. And the second vision makes a, a, a second point. Doing something for the Lord requires doing what the Lord says to do. Doing something for the Lord requires doing what the Lord says to do. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. In these verses, the second vision Zechariah sketches here, or the Lord sketches through Zechariah, really the, the path of godliness that God gave the people's forefathers before the exile. Here's how they were to be godly. It, it's somewhat obscured in our English translations. But, but verses 9 and 10 are, are full of covenantal terms. God focused to, I gave you the covenant. I gave you the covenant of Moses, the law of Moses, uh, the covenant with Abraham. This is the path to godliness. For example, the, the people were ex expected to dispense true justice. That, that word for true is that word we saw this morning, emmet, a, a covenantal term that comes up often, very familiar word tied in with an even more familiar word, the word hesed. The, the word we have translated kindness in, in our New American Standard. Truth means that which aligns to reality. Something that our depraved nature can only know when God reveals it. We can't find truth in our own thinking. God has to tell us what is truth. That is to lead to justice. As I said, kindness is that Hebrew word that means covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty and compassion, those were meant to be the, the normal ways in which a man and his neighbor would interact. When, when people looked at the nation of Israel, the most apparent thing they should see would be the actions between people 
towards one another, that we're, we're kind and compassionate. In fact, that should be most evident even when you turn to the most vulnerable of society, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor. Time and time again, God used those people, those categories of people as the litmus test of whether or not a person was evil. The law said, care for these who could not defend themselves. An evil person would not. A godly person would care for the defenseless. How a person treated those who were totally helpless revealed his heart. Of course, nothing in, in these verses were surprising. Nothing was unknown. This is very general. You know, when I talk about the Sunday school answer, this is the Sunday school answer. What does the law teach you to do? Every Jewish boy could have answered this very quickly. This is what the law tells me to do. There's nothing surprising there. Verses 10 and 11, as we move on, simply summarize a lot of the law. It's similar to how God really summarized the law in the gospel. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, verses 10 and 11, they're summarizing the love your neighbor part with a few common commands from the law. That, that you are to care for the, the, the helpless. You'd refuse to pay attention. You're, you're to do these things. Or verses 9 and 10, I guess I said 10 and 11. Those, those verses, that's just summarizing what the law teaches. Yet, what was historically revealed in Israel? Again, every Jew would have known their history at this time. The Lord uses four quick expressions to emphasize the unwillingness of, of the people's forefathers toward him. They refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint. All of these expressions are, are, are very visual pictures to, to symbolize how strongly they rejected God. They turned a stubborn shoulder. That, that was an idiom that, that really um, pictured the, the action of an oxen when a, a farmer was trying to put the yoke on the ox and a, a stubborn ox would turn his shoulder away from that yoke so it couldn't be placed on him. Stop their ears is literally, if we translate it literally, is they made their ears heavy. The picture of your ears just hanging down. So they can't lift. They can't listen to anything. They, they, they cannot be lifted in attention. These are vivid pictures that God's using of a willful refusal to obey him. That's the history of Israel. They rejected the law, and then they rejected a whole parade of prophets that, that came to enforce the law to tell them their violations. All that were sent with God's message through his spirit. And the end result, again, no surprise, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Judgment, exile. The people were taken from the land into Babylon. They, they knew this history. That was the only possible result for such continued disobedience. Um, 2 Chronicles 26, 15, and 16 expresses it this way. The, the Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. That was the way all the Jews looked at their history at this point in time. The point is, at this time in history, there was no surprise about any of those historical events, the, the reviews given here. Taken by itself, 
There was nothing at all surprising in what God says in these verses. These people, after all, had lived through the exiles. Their parents, had, or at least their grandparents, had been deported. They had grown up, been born in Babylon, or its territories. They knew God had punished their forefathers. They had returned themselves to a desolate land rather than a pleasant land. They, they knew that the land was not what their parents had pined after, saying the wonderful, glorious place of, of Israel. That's not what they came back to. They came to dust and, and ruins. They knew that God had ignored the pleas of their parents or grandparents when the judgment finally fell and the people finally pleaded to God to save them. They've grown up with the memories of the distress of their families. In fact, they had grown up and lived their own lives year after year commemorating God's judgment through annual days of fasting. I want you to notice one thing in the way the final phrase is worded. They made the pleasant land desolate. Even though it was God who, who judged the people, and it was the Babylonians who were the national enemies of, of Israel, and, and they gathered other enemies of Israel, even though they, those nations were God's instruments of judgment, this last phrase is worded in a way that Israel is charged with making the land desolate. It was their fault that judgment had fallen. They were the ones who caused all this misery to occur. Not God, not the Babylonians. The forebears to the petitioners asking the question about the days of fasting. As I said, there, there's nothing surprising here in the summation of, of God's judgment in this vision. What was surprising was that this history was given in answer to the question that was asked. That, that the judgments against their ancestors were placed at their feet when they asked God, what should they do? Remember they're saying, God, do we need to keep on fasting? And God says, judgment came because of what your ancestors did. When you add in the first vision, when you couple these two together, the implication is clear. God doesn't care about the self-instituted fast. They were initiated by the people who suffered the hardships they brought on themselves. God doesn't care about that. God cares about obedience to his commands. Something that should have been abundantly clear after the judgment. In fact, every fast day should have reminded them that God wants obedience. Not that we should mourn for what we used to have. Friends, doing something for the Lord requires doing what the Lord says to do. Let's be honest. We like to come up with things that, that work for us and then call it service to the Lord. We, we like to put a spiritual wrapper around things and, and then call it service. If we make it sound spiritual and look spiritual, then it must be service to God. For example, have you ever done something for the, the well-being of our building and felt good that you served the Lord? Now, I, I'm not saying we should not take care of our building. God's blessed us with building. We should care for it. But if we care for our building and then go home and ignore our neighbors, or worse, if we care for our building and go home and, 
and then prove to be unkind neighbors? Do we really think the Lord is pleased? I can point to verses that say, love your neighbor. You know, I cannot think of a single verse that says, care for your church property. Doing something for the Lord requires doing what the Lord says to do. That is the bottom line. Traditions. Tavi sang that song in the Fiddler, Traditions. Well, traditions are the root of the two visions that we've considered here in Zechariah. The first vision reminds us doing something in the Lord's name is not the same as doing something for the Lord. The second vision adds to that. It, it reminds us that doing something for the Lord requires doing what the Lord says to do. Traditions. They are part of our lives. Traditions are part of our church. Tra traditions are not all bad. In fact, traditions are necessary. But traditions are not necessarily good either. Tra traditions can help us serve God, but traditions can also disguise our service of self. So as we leave this afternoon, the, the main idea that I want us to take home with us is that we must always evaluate who we're serving with our spiritual efforts, ourselves or the Lord. Who are we serving? As we use our traditions, as we follow our traditions, who are we serving? We must always evaluate who we are serving with our spiritual efforts, ourselves or the Lord. And the only way we can evaluate it is by what the Lord has said. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn from this passage. Help us to be men and women who will evaluate our own efforts. Father, we do want to serve you, but we also as easily taken in by our self-deception as the people of Israel were. Our sin can, can cloud our minds and, and confuse our thinking so easily and quickly that we ask that your spirit would would give us clarity of thought today. That you would rip the, the blinders off our eyes and help us to see where we may be truly serving self and calling it service to you. Help us to evaluate what we are doing and, and determine who we are serving and make any change necessary so that we truly, truly serve you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.